When I was little, I used to catch fireflies and grind them into my hands, creating jewelry that glowed in the dark, the light in my skin shaping out promises, family language is spoken through the ghost. These days, I paint my nails instead. That is to say, I feel this place quietly altered me, as in, I think colored hands will paint all hurts political. As in, I will never forget the line conceived as the commencement of Western history with the linear path of a bullet that entered the dancing spine of the world until now in flux. The light bleeding from our fingers will one day harden, will arm us to excavate our shattered bones from these small cities, the slow burn of a comet, the comet, the ironwood, the whalebone, ocean spray, salish syllable, slow burn. As we get brushes into nitrocellulose for gun cotton, for space flight, for nail polish to open prayerful hands to welcome skin relations home. A reminder that a colored hand can reach past a skyscraper, can hold an annexed star and say, it matters how you treat a body. I write this on my fingertips and forget to pray for the fireflies, for their blood. Yet somehow I am absolved all the same. That was Eva Grant. I am an indigenous artist activist and community organizer based in Victoria, but I'm finishing up my final year at Stanford University. Reading her poem, The Comet. This is All Access on CFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the Husanich and Songhees territories of the Sanchothan and Lekwungen-speaking peoples. On this episode, we're talking about a paradigm shift in the music scene, We're asking how can we go beyond inclusion to create a more diverse scene that isn't centered around whiteness? What models have been used to locally promote indigenous artists and indigenous leadership in shows, festivals, and art events? How can we shift the colonial framework that can create a barrier for indigenous musicians? The poem was inspired by the police violence in the States, particularly against people of color and how childhood rituals in the natural world can be a form of protection against that violence. But in case you didn't hear them, in case you weren't listening, they said no, they said it in your Oh, I was also reading uh, a biography about Cecil Rhodes, uh, and there was a quote in there about how he says he would annex the stars if he could which meant that he would colonize them if he could. Like he looked into space and didn't see um, like a wonderment or just like a fantasy of human invention. He saw something that he wanted to conquer and own and possess. And I'm interested in in writing back to that and using a symbol like painting my nails (laughs) to say that I'm not interested in these kinds of colonial procedures. For Eva, an Indigenous presence in the music scene is critical. It is really, really important as Indigenous people to reify connections to the land, to one another. Um, I think it's important for us to all think of ourselves as as storytellers, um, that we're as young, Indigenous, creatively-minded people, that we are very uniquely predisposed to be the bearers of traditional knowledge, but also to forge new pathways and to make new connections. I feel 
in the West Coast, there's a very strong Indigenous presence in the art world. She thinks that art and music are particularly important in Indigenous communities because they promote a sense of resistance and wellness. But it also is an amazing um, tool that is used to combat barriers that Indigenous people might face in asserting sovereignty over body, over land, over nationhood. It's understanding the really subtle ways uh, that oppression is shaped and impacted by really subtle forms of coloniality. And so for us to be seen as um, very creative, sensitive people, that's very important. And art has for a really long time always formed part of Indigenous activism and movement making. And also, um, I've been a sideline participant in the Indigenous poetry scene and the spoken word scene for a while now, and I've seen an incredible Indigenous presence. I think there is something to spoken word that really, really speaks to people uh, of Indigenous heritage. There's a certain power and ceremony in holding all these symbols together, you know, with the power of language um, that I've just been incredibly inspired by. It's very beautiful. It's something really special. Recognizing the territory in a land acknowledgement before a show is important, but it's necessary for that acknowledgement to come with a commitment to action. I see a growing willingness in the music communities, especially to really acknowledge the territory, um, which is feeding people's creative passions um, and hosting their ability to share their vision, share their power with the world. I would always get confused by people saying, oh, I'm an artist, I'm a Victoria native. And I would say, really, your song is your Lusungan? <laughs> and that wasn't the case. One model that Eva has seen work for promoting Indigenous creators is New Constellations, a traveling storytelling and music festival that features Indigenous and non-Indigenous musicians and writers. Eva applied for the mentorship program and was mentored by Shad. I think what was really important uh, in the case of New Constellations the mentorship program, was that all the mentees were Indigenous and a great deal of the mentors were Indigenous. The ones who weren't Indigenous were very sensitive and able to talk through art, through a lot of the issues that Indigenous mentees might be facing or wanting to bring out in their music. We had uh, Lido Pimienta, Mo Clark, uh, DJ Indian, Jasmine Burke, a, a lot of really, really amazing mentors who had brought themes of indigeneity into their craft, who had taken on that mantle, who were also really interested in their art, promoting a kind of empathetic understanding about the other cultures that came before um, European settlers. So representation isn't enough. Centering Indigenous folks is about Indigenous leadership. And so I thought that was really nice because often programs don't do enough to attract Indigenous mentors, you know, to find artistic ancestors and people who've come before and who've done the work to inspire young people. It's just also so nice the way that they centered the fellowship. It was about music, but it was also really just about gathering together to witness and document the ongoing stories and movements and imaginative endeavors among Indigenous people to push past reality, to think about a more inclusive way to live in Canada, to 
really conjure a world beyond present conditions of settler colonialism. And that imagination and that vision was really present in the mentorship program and in the work that came out of it. But visibility is still important. And Eva says that creating spaces where Indigenous artists can collaborate will be essential to shift the paradigm beyond inclusion. That, yeah, that is just one thing I struggle with, really connecting with other Indigenous artists and helping them out and supporting their projects and bringing them on to my own vision. Because I believe that in the future, this will all have to be so collaborative. I think networking among Indigenous people is going to become so important. And that has to do with visibility. Often, I will be the only Indigenous artist presented, or I will be in the crowd watching and cheering on the only Indigenous artist presented. So that is something I would really, really like to see in the future. Like a physical space where we can all gather um, and be in conversation and share art, like a collective. And when I return to Victoria in a couple of months after I graduate, that's something I'd be interested in building. I think it would be wonderful in Victoria to develop some sort of artist collective or network that specialized in bringing Indigenous people together to help with projects. Because I don't want the work to feel isolating. And sometimes it can because I feel like I'm the only one I can trust with my own vision, the only one who can be sensitive enough to the experiences I'm trying to convey. Next, some folks who have been building that collective. Uh, it felt urgent that uh, we we reframe uh, the way that we understand who we are. Well, That's France Trepanier, an artist and curator of Ghanaian Gehaga and French ancestry. France joined us with Chris. My name is Chris Creighton Kelly, and. Uh, I'm an immigrant to Canada. My parents and my family has been in India for a few hundred years. And I have also, obviously, by my name, um, British background as well. France and Chris are the organizers behind Primary Colors, a trilingual initiative to place Indigenous art practices at the centre of the Canadian art system. I'm kind of uh, emulating some ideas of Doreen Jensen, who was a Gigstan uh, artist and curator and thinker who was saying until this is done until we place indigenous art at its right place canada cannot be a real country um, and and the reason for that for me is that these art practices are the practices of here they're the practices of this land all the rest is immigrant practices they came from europe uh, initially and we built a whole system for supporting european art forms um, and then other practices came from, you know, different parts of the world. But we have to recenter the practices of here because this is where they belong, and we have uh, a responsibility to make sure that they um, that they exist and that they de develop and that we nurture them for future generation, and not just for indigenous people, but for all people that are living on this territory. And to recognize the art practices by people of color play a critical role in any discussion that imagines Canada's futures. When you play different roles, and you know that for me that includes being a writer and also a curator like her and an artist, um, but you know also a technician and doing many things in the arts, you come to realize how uh, deeply embedded this idea of Eurocentricity is, and how the methodologies that the 
um, people that don't feel part of that, let's put it that way, indigenous artists, artists of color, um, have adopted. And the way the Canadian state uh, proposes that you adopt with your resistance to this situation I just haven't worked. Frost and I are, are often talking about how the access paradigm doesn't work, the inclusion paradigm doesn't work. And if you look at it from the point of Indigenous people, it's actually insulting because here are the first peoples of this land and the, the art system is saying to them, we're going to include you. I mean, it's we see the results of that kind of thinking every day, but this idea that you're doing a favor to Indigenous people by including them in your system. So we need to look at different models and then we need to talk, as in all political struggles, about how we get from where we are to where we want to be. These conversations and the increased willingness to change problematic models bring about new challenges. Because as we have all of these uh, big arts organizations that have been um, historically receiving a lot of the resources of the art system in this country, like the ballet, the symphonies, the big companies, the big theater companies, um, now they decide to indigenize or they decide to decolonize <laughs> and guess who's doing the work. <laughs> but there's a bit of a, um, a paradox in, in what we're going through right now because a lot of the pressure is put on organizations or artists that have been historically underfunded to go and help the big guys figure out how to decolonize themselves. So the Primary Colors Initiative is a way to reframe doing that work and to focus on a different narrative. And also conversation around reconciliation where we're not necessarily centering the relationship between Indigenous people and settlers. Because that's a lot how the conversation around reconciliation in Canada has shaped up. So we're looking at different histories and different alliances and different possible conciliation, because the word reconciliation is problematic, um, between different communities, communities of color and indigenous communities. But that doesn't mean that it's straightforward. I know it's a little tricky to go there, but again, let's live with the discomfort of, of, of what's happening. I think that there's a lot of goodwill, but I think that um, the art scene in Victoria um, is pretty much mainstream and the understanding of decolonizing itself is, I think, a little challenging. Um, there has not, there, there, there's little pockets of change and, and it's always tricky to point fingers. Um, but I think that there are a few organizations that are trying hard to do this work properly, which is not easy and it's not, there's no quick fix. 400 years of, of, of an, uh, you know, uh, colonization of habits, of, of, of privileges cannot be turned around in, in, as Chris was saying, in one conversation. Um, but I think that there are a number of, of organizations that are trying to, to do this work in a good way. Dealing with complacency and challenging these notions of Eurocentricity and white supremacy means more than increasing visibility and representation. Visibility does not necessarily equal power to change things. However, having said that, if we look historically at every struggle that there's been where, to use a cliche, where people speak truth to power, it begins with visibility. And that's how all the social changes that have happened, at least in my lifetime, but preceding when I was around, uh, have happened. People have to come out of their, if you'll pardon the phrase, but come out of their various closets to begin with. They have to declare themselves. 
we are here and we matter and we're human beings and this is what we're going to do. And, and then out of that comes organizing. And I think that is happening. We have to look at the disparity between white settlers and indigenous people or people of color as part of a system that marginalizes people and privileges others. Representation, Front says, isn't just about more bodies. It's about leadership, power, and autonomy. So when we talk of the presence, what, what is what is that? What is that presence? What does that look like? So if you look at the arts organization in Victoria, all of them, and you look at the percentage of people of color and, and indigenous artists, either as employees or on the board. And when I say employees, I don't mean like the people sweeping at night. I'm talking in the, you know, um, more powerful positions. Um, if you look at who's there, who's doing, who's programming, um, then it's it goes quickly to you go quickly to realize that there's not much presence, and when there is, it's so often quite tokenized. Um, it's that you know, um, it's that six months contract or this little internship here or that little fellowship there. Um, but it doesn't challenge the systemic nature of this conversation. Like Eva, Franz and Chris recognize the importance of creating spaces for Indigenous people and people of color to develop autonomous movements and real change that come from lived experience and understanding. To create the spaces where people can come together and, and, and meet and have real conversations and be visible. And just in case, we too might sound like a, you know, happy face uh, Pollyanna optimists types, uh, it needs to be also said that we live in a very particular time um, of Islamophobia, of racism, of pushback against LGBTQ people, um, of all kinds of resistance to these changes, because in my humble opinion, these changes represent the future. And there's no better example of that than what's happening in the United States, but it's happening all over the world, including here in Canada. So, at the one hand, we can say we're optimistic. I agree with France and what she said. I don't mean to, to just be, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. But we also have to address this larger, uh, what would I call it, um, backlash to the, the idea of visibility and social change. Creating this space was a big part of the initiative. They held a gathering where artists engaged in a series of roundtables to ask questions like, what decolonization really looks like and how to reimagine the Canadian art system in this context. The people that were present at that gathering were mainly Indigenous artists and artists of color. Um, to be in a room when you look around and most people are not white people creates create something, right? I mean, a lot of people of color, and, and I'm white passing, so uh, I'm, I'm aware of my privileges here. Um, but for a person of color, an indigenous person who have to have their guard up most of the time because they live in a white world, and especially in Victoria, uh, to find themselves in a room with a majority of people of color and indigenous people was like this, okay, I can let my guard down. I'm safe here. These people understand my reality. And I think that was part of the, the gratitude, I think, that people felt, if that makes sense, of just being able to be in that place and be able to be who they are without having to protect 
themselves too much, or maybe a little less than, than what they're used to in their everyday life, and not have to negotiate white fragility. Primary Colors has four phases. The first phase involved doing research across Canada to understand the local concerns around decolonizing and indigenizing the art scene. The second phase was the gathering, where 150 artists of color and indigenous artists came together to discuss colonialism and artistic practice. The third phase is to generate new knowledge about how to make real change in a contemporary context. And the fourth phase is about the dissemination of that knowledge and creating space for new initiatives that include other voices that get left out. So it's not about, oh, we want to be part of, we want to be included in your thing. We want to reframe the thing. And that's happening in a context of decolonizing uh, approaches, decolonizing methodologies, and decolonizing the way we share knowledge with each other. The fourth phase also included what are called incubation projects, which were projects that were conceptualized at the gathering and then were provided with some funding to actually see the project through. So... What else came out of there was a sense of solidarity, was a sense of networking, was the incubation projects, and was the beginning of conversations that rise above uh, what's happening around a dinner table or at a meeting, a community-based meeting, or at uh, a moment where a community decides to organize and take it to the next level. And providing funding for these projects meant that people could continue doing the work after the gathering ended. The image, the metaphor for me was that in Victoria, we were building that big bonfire and we wanted to make sure that if their little sparks flew out of that bonfire, that we could nurture those little fires in different parts of the territory. So that's in a way what we, uh, we were able to do. We asked them what aspects of this project could be used as a model for other initiatives and for other spaces that want to engage with decolonization in a meaningful way. For France, that meant changing the way we communicate from a transactional style to a more relational style. The way that we understand knowledge, the way that we um, value expertise, the way that we think in a very universalist way in the Western world, um, the way that we talk down to people often. So very deliberately on the onset, we decided that we would not do panels of experts, no keynotes, um, that we would not um, talk down to people, um, and that we would value the knowledge that everybody embodies, because we all carry knowledge, we all carry experience, and that we would devise ways, methods, systems, where that knowledge could be valued. And I think if, if there's something that has been emulated, that has mm -hmm. been inspiring to other people, mm -hmm. is that method. Franz says that this style of communicating allows people to bring more of themselves and their experience into the conversation. I think people... Um, were able to engage not just intellectually, uh, but when you go into your embodied knowledge, obviously you bring your body with you, you bring your emotion with you, you bring your spirituality with you. So it was a way of engaging not just people intellectually, but in all that they are. And that shifts completely the engagement. It shifts the relationship. It shifts what people left with and the kind of inspiration. So... Um, it's, in a way, um, some methodologies that are indigenous-inspired, we could yeah. say. 
because it's not like you can go somewhere and, and, and say, I want two boxes of decolonizing methodology. <laughs> you, you have to kind of invent them as you go. And we have no pretension, it's very important to say this, that we have the formula for decolonizing. We don't. And in fact, formulas, if that's what they even are, methodologies, arise from people talking and trying to understand how we can talk better. So you create a context in which that embodied knowledge can come out onto the table. And be valued. Yeah. And then used and, yeah. and, and turned Put into, into action. Yeah. This model facilitates complexity, which goes against the common narrative of wanting processes like this to be streamlined and transactional. I think when you get into um, a space that is much more relational, it allows for complexity and it allows for multiple stories to emerge. It allows for multiple identities to emerge and be acknowledged and be recognized. Um, and again, this goes against the grain of Canadians. We've been told a Canadian story that it in fact is not really the real story. Um, it's a mythology, it's a myth, uh, and we have to deconstruct that mythology if there's any hope of, of us getting to be a, a proper country uh, and a respectful country and centered and grounded. Uh, so to allow that complexity, I think, is, is a really key moment and to let different worldviews collide sometimes. And that's what happens, right? It's not, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy work at all by any stretch of the imagination. Not if you're doing it, right? it is very hard. Actually, Chris, your famous phrase is like, if you're doing diversity and it's going really well, well, you're not doing it right. Up next, we hear from someone who's trying to do it right. Hi, my name is Ria Fanger. I'm from Victoria, B.C. I live on Lekwungen territory in Esquimalt. Ria is one of the organizers of the Coxila Music Fest, a fundraiser and celebration of Indigenous cultural resurgence, which happens on the Coatzin territory near Duncan. The organizers wanted to create an accessible learning space and to bring people together for a musical weekend that uplifts and centers Indigenous voices through performances but also through workshops that are led by Indigenous folks. Yeah, trying to maybe strip some of the academic and like kind of like social justice language that can get really um, caught up in these movements and like kind of strip them down to like what are those core beliefs. Um, if you don't know what decolonization means, there are a lot of other ways to phrase it. My parents had never heard it till I said it. And so trying to bring together kind of like a wider range of people. So like, how can you appeal to different generations? When Coke Silo was still in the planning stages, the organizers attended elders lunches at the Coatzin Elder Center to meet with the people of the territory where they wanted to hold the festival. If you ever have a chance to go, I'd highly recommend it. It's every Wednesdays and Fridays, and it's an amazing feast. And you just hear stories and listen and can be really powerful. Sometimes people are talking about residential schools, and other times folks are just talking about uh, what they caught and what's in the smokehouse mm -hmm. that week. Which is where they met Ron and Deb George, who consult with them every step of the way. And they're just the sweetest people mm -hmm. you can imagine. Um, so we brought them into the fold of like, we're like, would a festival be a good idea in the Cowichan Valley? And they were really supportive, and I mean, still are supportive. 
Um, and then we brought Joe Akerm in. He runs um, some amazing Quaquim projects on North Salt Spring. Um, he's phenomenal, and he's a cultural liaison in like learning the Halkaminam language. And he is a little younger, so he kind of helps bring in some of the younger Indigenous folks. Doing the work of building relationships and having Indigenous consultants on the organizing crew is vital. Because I think this is where like tokenism can really happen. If as a white settler, I was to think like, what should be the center of this festival to make it Indigenous? Um, just by that nature, it probably wouldn't be authentic. Um, and so this is where having like a diverse organizing crew and having someone who is from another culture and like just be like, yeah, this is how it's going to be done. It's so local specific and geographically dependent. So get out and like meet and like interact with the people whose territory you're on. In addition to promoting Indigenous leadership and consultation, reassess that the organizers have a different approach to choosing who gets to play. There was something that came out on social media like a few years ago where they took out um, all of the white male musicians off of festival posters. And there was maybe two or three musicians and acts that were left behind just to like highlight how prominent like the patriarch and like white men and just like cis normativity can be in all aspects of life, but like especially in the music industry. Um, so we're committed to having like a very diverse musical lineup that like really tries to fight against that. And this extends to when they're scheduled as well. Put Indigenous and people of color artists and queer artists on at good time slots. Don't shuffle them to like 3 p.m. the Sunday of a festival unless they request that. Um, put them in some of the bigger time slots where you might be tempted to put a headliner. Put them. They also want to make this a festival that's appealing to youth. Um, one of our goals is to have a lot of Cowitzin and Kwakwim youth come out to a music festival because from talking with elders and talking with folks at like the Native Friendship Centers and Youth Centers um, is that a lot of Indigenous kids do not come out to music festivals predominantly because they're very expensive um, or they have no means to get there or um, you need to sometimes be 18 or like there's just like a bunch of barriers. So we've made it free for all Kwakwim people to come to the festival um, or by by donation or pay what you want for other um, Indigenous nations. Um, we just made it free for youth in general. And we have a shuttle going to Duncan. Um, so when we think about like what type of hiring or who we want to be on the bill, we think of like what bands would get some 14-year-olds from like rural Duncan excited. Coxila is also a dry festival which was a recommendation from the elders the organizers consulted with. This is like a family music festival, and let's focus on other things um, that aren't alcohol-based. So I think when folks know that, they also feel a little better maybe having their kids or like teenagers at the event, um, knowing that like they can't sneak into a beer garden 
because there is none. <laughs> Over the past two years, they've had Snotty Nose Res Kids and Mob Bounce, who are both incredible indigenous hip-hop artists. But they also are amazing role models and, like, youth just, like, love coming out to them. Like, they're, the crowd in front of their shows the past few years has just been, like, well, the whole festival, but then this, like, large contingent of, like, indigenous youth who are seeing Snotty Nose Res Kids for free on their home territory. And that feels amazing. The organizers wanted to create an opportunity for youth to be in a space that is for them, when most of the world isn't. Because being a teenager sucks <laughs> for anyone. And trying to do something like fun with your friends as you're like, you know, trying to still find out who you are, I think is really important. And just like, having a fun musical event to go to that is like supports and is like uplifting your culture um, can be really powerful and amazing. And to like see acts um, that look like you on stage is so vital for like young musicians and just like young kids to be like, oh, cool, I can, I can do that too. Or like, it's not just another like white man with a guitar on stage who might, is likely very talented for sure. Um, I think it's important that youth can just like kind of get out and see what's possible. But holding Coke Sila on this territory has also been an opportunity to heal the land. One of the first years at the festival, we had a large elders lunch and we were told by many folks, um, specifically to Selim and Deb, that it was so important to have this festival and to have this, like here, specifically there at that site, because uh, it was the first time in 150 years that um, their language and dances have been on that ground, which used to be a really special gathering place um, for the Cowitson people. So we had the Zinqua dancers, who are an amazing, like, intergenerational Cowitson dance troupe, um, open the festival um, and provide the dances for the opening ceremony. And that was the first time that that had happened in over a century. And as someone who's like a settler and sometimes feels very disconnected from my culture, which is all based in like well, in Europe and like Jewish background, um, to have folks tell me that like, in order to like heal generational trauma, it involves healing the land and that this was the first step, um, felt really powerful. And I don't even know if I fully grasped, grasp how powerful that is. And facilitating this meaningful healing work helps push back on more tokenistic decolonization work. Territory acknowledgements are slapped on everything now. Um, most people, it's just a checkbox for them or for their organization. And like, that is not okay, obviously. I know some music festivals and some other organizers, they are struggling with how to like actively engage with um, indigenous folks and how to create programming and to create a space that isn't just a tokenistic reach out 
And that takes time and that takes being involved in the community and getting out of your like settler framework and getting out of like the paradigms that we typically operate and function in. The settler organizers also have a background in doing frontline work with Indigenous-led projects. And the willingness to learn and really invest in the work is a key aspect of making it work. And as a settler and as like the other settlers on the committee, we've like guaranteed that like we are not paid for this work and any grants we get, we pay Indigenous consultants before ourselves. Um, and like any money we come in uh, goes towards like Indigenous projects and the Indigenous folks that we're hiring and working with. But they don't just rely on themselves to make sure they're doing the work in the best way they can. This year, they've hired a trauma, diversity, and inclusion consultant. Um, this year, we've actually hired Naomi Cromwell, and she's amazing. She's based in Vancouver in the Kootenays, um, and she's a person of color whose like job is to make sure festivals, uh, usually of larger nature, include Indigenous artists, people of color, and queers in ways that are not tokenistic, which is like... Coke really doesn't want to just like fall into the trap of like being this tokenistic festival. Um, so we've hired her and she's amazing. And so she helps just make recommendations to make sure that we're not just going to become like every other music festival. But Rhea also named the fact that it's impossible to guarantee that it will be a completely accessible and safe space. And the reality is that will never happen. Um, so to be transparent about that and just like try your hardest, be upfront that there will be mistakes. The most important thing for her in doing this work is listening. Listen to your elders and listen to Indigenous women. Just just say that on repeat for like an hour for this whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's really important to kind of like check your privilege at the door and like really let go of assumptions of like how you want things to operate or how you think things should operate and just be like, all right, what is being said? And like really listen. If you want to check out Coke Silo this year, get your ticket, come to the festival, bring a crew. It's going to be pretty epic this year. <laughs> and yeah, we are just so excited to see what comes out. And we are hoping that it does not rain again. <laughs> sure, hi, my name is Rama De La Rosa. Next, we spoke with the person behind the Resistance Rising Choir an activist choir in Victoria who brings their songs to the front lines. She doesn't see decolonization or the choir as radical. It's fundamental to living with care on this land. You know, we can call it radical or political, but honestly, I think it's just deeply human. Uh, this isn't coming from a, an agenda, in my opinion. This is coming from a place of, like, I'm a human being that has a lot of care. If I find out that, like, I'm living in someone's beautiful house and they've been locked up in the basement, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to be concerned not because it's political, but because it's human. 
Well, it'd be like, hey, who are you? Oh, this is your place. Why are you down there? <laughs> I mean, why don't you have access to what I have access to? The Resistance Rising Choir was inspired by a local activist group, Rise and Resist. That uh, helps organize events to help save the places that we live. Um, and uh, I'm inspired by grassroots organizing. Um, I'm a musician with a choral background. Rama has been in choir since she was six and was a traveling folk musician for eight years. At one point, she decided that she wanted her music to do more than entertain. And that I wanted to use music as a tool to open, uplift, and inspire uh, action. Um, Because I feel like um, hope is such a beautiful thing, but sometimes we get stuck with it and and that we don't know what to do with it. Um, And so I feel like I want to use this music to inspire care and action through that care. Rama's background is Guatemalan, an eighth-generation settler, which is something she finds useful in conversations around decolonization. Because I am, I am literally in between <laughs> so many of these intersections, and and so when people are kind of shouting across these lines, sometimes I am that line, and so I, I, I. I I'm hoping to be a bridge and to kind of bring together these different viewpoints because I think that at the end of the day, through a lot of conversations that I've had, that um, we we all really care about the same things. We may have different ways of showing it, but um, but yeah, I I think that there's way more commonality there, and I'd like to try to express that through our music and through just kind of getting down to the the simplicity of it. She says it's been humbling work to learn how to show up for Indigenous people, and it's a continued learning process. I've had to put a lot of work in to figure out, you know, whose territory do I live on? How do you say that word? You know, like getting schooled by an elder by walking in front of her and like she would not accept my apology (laughs) and just having to accept that I was just wrong and that um, there's so much that I don't know um, that I should know. Like I'm living in somebody's house and I don't even know them and that's, that's a terrible feeling. And so I, um, I've been trying to catch up <laughs> as awareness has kind of been growing in me. And it's been such an enriching experience. And I feel like I'm, I'm in the same place in a lot of ways, but, uh, but coming closer to home without really going anywhere. And uh, that's a really good feeling. And, uh, and I still have so much work to do. But yeah, de- decolonization for me is really a, a journey of pulling away the barriers that keep me from seeing. I think it is the responsibility of all of us. And I think that part of it is getting over the discomfort of having to do something that you're not used to doing and maybe feeling... Uh, Kind of dumb sometimes. (laughs) Decolonizing often means protecting the land, and this connection is critical. Rama says that whether the choir is at a protest against the Trans Mountain Pipeline or salmon farms, the relationship between Indigenous people and the land is at the center. Um, Salmon, in particular, uh, have a very deeply entwined relationship with First Nation people. Some are even considered the salmon people. So uh, there's beyond the ecological aspect of it, which is tremendous, there's an an intense cultural connection. There's also the reality of survival 
that people who have lived on salmon since time immemorial for the first time ever are going without salmon on a regular basis. So that's very intense. That's that's real. That's survival at its core. That's cultural. So um, the the connection is very deep, and it, it's not just poetic. It's a very visceral connection. Understanding that connection also means that Rama interacts with the land in a different way. And so when I'm when I'm in a space now, I try to I try to look at who's there, but then I also try to see who's not there, and try to try to ask myself like why why aren't they here? Where are they? What are they doing? Are they okay? You know, mm-hmm. and just try to like um, lift the veil a bit. You know, I just like so part of that thing is just I feel really dumb and I feel really blind sometimes, and uh, and creating relationship with local indigenous people, which is really hard to do. You know, um, I live on stay out territory, but uh, the only stay out people that I know, I've had to seek out relationship with. You know, and so so yeah, it's a it's a lot of work and a lot of learning. It's about humility and an openness to learn. That's it, yeah. And it's not my fault that I don't know, but it is my responsibility to educate myself. Starting this choir has been a way for her to bridge two things she cares about, frontline activism and singing. But she's brought other passions of hers into doing activist work. Rama raised over $14,000 for the Tsleil-Waututh Nation's legal battle against Kinder Morgan. And that pipeline was quashed through that lawsuit. So, you know, I'm sure $14,000 is a drop in the bucket compared to what they had to spend on that. But it's just one little way that, like, you can take something that seems like swimming pipeline doesn't really seem related. But you can you can create uh, ways to make waves with what you love. And so I feel like there's lots of ways to do that. And I, I, want, I want people to... To get inspired, to be like, what can I do? What you know? What am I really great at? How can I focus positive action to create real change? But also, singing is a way to bring empowerment and connection to the ongoing resistance against colonial forces. We're we're talking about saving our coastline. We're talking about saving old growth trees. We're talking about uh, women's rights. We're talking about things that we love and care about. Why not sing it? You know, why not? Why not say it in a song? And so um, being able to uh, express vocally in a group like that, I feel like has far reaching waves, right? And that a person may come into the group feeling a bit timid with their voice and then through the process of singing over a season might find themselves being more outspoken in their communities or their families or their workplace and it um, is very empowering and uh, and connecting so if you're interested in checking out our choir feel free to send an email to resistancerisingchoir at gmail.com or find us on Facebook Resistance Rising Choir and I hope to see you singing we also spoke with some musicians who shared a bit about their experience in the music scene. Okay. Uh, my name is Philo Russ. Um, i from the DT Dot and Haida Gwaii. Um, I'm a guitar player, I guess I would say. I, mean, I play all instruments, but mainly guitar. Um, I'm in two bands and a solo artist. Uh, the bands are Vine for Glory and Taboo Parlor. And in one of those bands, Vying for Glory... His dad is his bandmate. Yeah, a lot of people get a kick out of that when I, I usually say it on stage or whatever. So, (laughs) 
One of the issues he talked about was that he just doesn't see a lot of indigenous performers. Around the local music scene anyways, like I've been performing for almost five years around here and I haven't seen a lot. Maybe I'm working with the wrong people or in the wrong scenes, but other than my band, we're like the only... But the lack of indigenous musicians that Philo is seeing speaks to a larger structural issue about access to resources, not a lack of indigenous talent. Yeah, I think more indigenous artists getting out there would be a, a big help. Another issue is tokenization, which can happen when indigenous musicians are scheduled to play together regardless of the genre of their music, just because they are indigenous. Philo says it's something about organizing events that needs to change. Just probably by not um, just doing, like, say, a showcase of just indigenous artists and maybe just, like, filter them in with all other kind of artists so it's not just a you know, an indigenous thing. They're just artists with everyone else. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I would think would help it. Yeah. Because indigenous is not a genre. Yeah, exactly. I'm a, <laughs> a rock and roller, not a, a native rocker. You know, it's like, that's what I'm trying to like, oh, that's what I've always been trying to be about is the music first. And then, you know, of course I'm First Nation. So people know, some people notice it. Sometimes they don't, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Philo thinks about how to use his songwriting as a way to talk about colonization. Just to let it be known, just get the knowledge out there. Not many people know about all the past and what happened. You know, like a lot of my friends that are my age didn't know what happened in the, you know, say residential school or anything like that. And it's like, to me, that's kind of like mind blowing that they don't know anything about it. You know, it's like, so yeah, a lot of that is in my songs too, like the underlying meaning of them. So, but it's something that he does with a lot of consideration. Like I was struggle with that and it's kind of like it's kind of like you know political do i want to be that do i want to cram it down their throat and then it's like i try not to but then it's like at the same time i'm not really you know it's just kind of subtly doing it so they can figure it out if they want to and if not they can just take it at face value and it is what it is so that that's why i kind of like went with the the subtle approach to it instead of just being like harping it all the time and being like, this is this, and this is what I'm trying to say, this is what I mean, this is what you should know, you know, and it's not like, that's not my approach to it. I, I'm not saying that it's the right approach, but that's the one that I'm taking, so. I think the word activism is like a verb. So like, it's not, you know, an identity I have, but it's something that I like to engage in as much as I can. That's Ray Spoon, a fixture of the Victoria music scene and someone who's outspoken on trans rights, environmentalism, and decolonization. And I'm a musician and an author, and I also run a record label called Coax Records. Their creative process is tied to their understanding of social justice and activism. Yeah, for sure. And I think creation is only worthwhile if it comes from a kind of uncomfortable place. And yeah, both oppression and, you know, privilege are uncomfortable to a person in their own way. Mm -hmm. One is maybe more interesting. <laughs> Ray says it's really important to them to be able to assess their privilege in their life and in their music. I think it's a privilege to not have to ever do that. So mm -hmm. there are folks who, you know, don't have to worry about accessible spaces for themselves. Um, something that's always been really important to me uh, is to look at the ways that I may also be like oppressing people. So for me, it's very important to keep evaluating my position in that as well. And to them, it's important to internalize the fact that they benefit from the cultural genocide of indigenous people. That I am 
like a benefactor of a genocide. Like everything I have, everything I had growing up, everything around me where I'm sitting right now is all, you know, things that I was given because of a genocide. And so you can't make that right. But I think, you know, having more space for like folks culture that like my ancestors and, you know, settlers ancestors literally like tried to wipe out is a very, very like small first step. Ray uses their platform as a musician and author to tell their own story and talk about these issues in a way that is personal to them without speaking on behalf of other people. I try to speak from my own space. So if I'm in a place where I feel like people don't know, I talk about where I'm from, you know, that I live on the, uh, the ancestral, unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, Songhees, um, Esquimalt, and Wasanish peoples. And I grew up on Treaty 7. So even just changing that dialogue, calling Victoria a settlement called Victoria, changing that dialogue, it's not like we are in Canada. Canada is also like a made up thing, you know? So having that like as part of, uh, that's how I talk on stage. Um, but at the same time saying like, I'm a settler, you know, it's complicated and everybody's, uh, it's, you know, colonialism, it's a huge mess. I think there's no good way to be a settler. For other artists who are settlers, Ray talked about how important it is to speak for yourself. So you're not being appropriative or taking up too much space that should be for indigenous folks. I think the main responsibility of a settler artist is to like stick to your own story, stay in your lane and then amplify like other folks, you know? And yeah, because often, you know, things get co-opted by like that white savior complex thing. And really, it's the indigenous communities who are at the helm. Whenever you see anything good that's been like one for indigenous folks, like they did it for themselves. For indigenous folks who live in poverty or face any other barriers to access, it's just simply more difficult to produce music at a professional level. So the lack of representation is not for a lack of indigenous talent. Like the top prizes are being won by indigenous artists, you know, in Canada, and because they are the best, like a lot of yeah. them. So, um, however, you know, I think the actual support structure is not there for folks to access as much um, to like kind of build that spot. So not everyone is getting like that support to be, you know, more, yeah, not mainstream, but to have those opportunities to grow to as an artist. So. One possible way to address the barriers to access that Ray sees is more micro-grants for Indigenous people and people of color. Because I see a lot of folks struggling for, like, to press their vinyl or to get a publicist and all these things that kind of cost between, like, two and $4,000. Instead of having that whole package deal, which is hard to get at first, um, that people could have micro-grants to just help or maybe help on a tour. Like, I know there are some Creative BC micro-grants happening right now. Um, but yeah, I think... That being like the, those indigenous musicians being the first community that would be like served by micro grants is like a really good idea. That's the difference between, you know, having a lot of privilege and, you know, credit. I think having it just to like help folks who are having that like intersectionality of like maybe class and being indigenous or whatever else is going on or like um, being disabled by things and being indigenous like that their micro grants would make a huge difference. Ultimately, the music industry is just a microcosm of the larger colonial institution. So changing the structures in place also means that settlers have to make significant changes to their lives as the beneficiaries of colonialism. And so it's like a matter of just taking some resources away from some white men, <laughs> some white people. Yeah, exactly. You know, like you actually have to give up your money 
Like that's the thing that I think settlers don't get. It's like you actually have to take your stuff. Like that's like that's the thing is like it's money and stuff and power and that's like the last thing most people want to get rid of. Like to want to give up or, you know, want to make space for and your space. Like, you know, I think everyone there's enough space for everyone. You know, if some person gets something and you don't, it doesn't mean that there's less space in the world. But at the same time, yeah, it is about like (laughs) really making, you know, stepping back, not taking up space and giving whatever resources you have. This means that not being able to acknowledge settler privilege perpetuates this issue and that just acknowledging the territory isn't enough. To meaningfully move towards a decolonized community, we need to, as Franz said, be willing to be in the discomfort of the complexity of this conversation. We need to move past an inclusion paradigm so that indigenous leadership can create solutions that make sense. They made for you, for you. Ice palaces that they made for you. They made for you, for you. You're cool now while my head is cold. This episode burning. of All Access was produced by Nicola Watts with help from Katie Denslow, Coco Nielsen, Arcade Palette, Stephen Piazza, and me, Elizabeth Volus. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to all our guests, Eva Grant, Franz Trepanier, Chris Kelly, Rhea Fanger, Rama De La Rosa, Philo Russ, and Ray Spoon. All access would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada and UVic Student Awards and Financial Aid. If you like what you heard, tune in next week, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. They made for you, for you. Hey, give me your ear. Let's uh let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. My name's Mary Decker, and I'm the executive producer of this podcast. We wanted to do this project because we wanted a way to bring narrative audio stories that were hyper-local and centered underrepresented voices to our community, because narrative storytelling is such an effective way to apply a critical lens and to explore these greater themes through everyday experiences. But also, it's such a good way to engage people with things that they might not otherwise really care about. Um, it offers perspective and nuance and like it creates this investment. And I think that's really cool. If you like this episode, you might also enjoy an upcoming episode of Full Circle about how new immigrants and settlers fit into the continuum of colonization called Where We Fit.